2: from KQED.
3: This is the California Report. Good morning, I'm Lily Jamali. We begin with the massive wildfires burning in northern California. The Dixie Fire burning in the Feather River Canyon in Plumas and Butte counties is now the largest in the state this year. The fire has burned nearly 143,000 acres and is 18 percent contained. Incident meteorologist Julia Rutherford says weather conditions will remain a challenge into the weekend.
2: We're looking for a ridge of high pressure building in from the Great Basin. That's gonna bring uh, some significant warming over the next two days and continued uh, drier conditions that are gonna actually even be getting drier than they are uh, right now.
3: Dangerous fire conditions forced another round of evacuation orders yesterday in Plumas County. The fire is burning near the town of Paradise, site of the deadly 2018 Camp Fire. The utility PG&E filed an incident report this week saying its equipment may have started the Dixie Fire. Meanwhile, the Tamarack Fire, burning in Alpine County south of Lake Tahoe, has burned more than 50,000 acres and is just 4 percent contained. The Alpine County and El Dorado County Sheriff's offices will be providing escorts today to residents forced to evacuate so they can pick up emergency items they left behind. The cost of an education from the University of California just got more expensive. And the sticker price of tuition is set to go up every year indefinitely under a plan the UC Regents approved yesterday. It's being called a forever hike. KQED's
0: Vanessa Roncano reports the increases will be capped at 5%. Starting in 2022, it's estimated new in-state undergrads will pay roughly $530 more in tuition and fees. The good news is once students start, they're guaranteed not to face another hike for six years. UC President Michael Drake says financial aid will insulate many.
1: Here's the bottom line. The net cost of attendance for most California resident undergraduates will be less under this plan, than if tuition were to remain flat. To be clear, this plan is an increase for most families making over about $130,000 a year.
0: Because of financial aid, more than half of UC students don't pay tuition today. And the new plan dedicates close to half of new revenue generated by these increases to expanding financial aid. Proponents say it gives students predictability by preventing unexpected hikes and helps stabilize a system that's faced volatile state funding and pressure to serve more students. Some critics told the regents coming out of a pandemic is not the right time to increase families' financial burden. For the California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancagno.
3: We're going to turn now to the pandemic. The major surge of new coronavirus cases is growing in L.A. County. And as KPCC's Jackie Fortier reports, more fully vaccinated people are testing positive with the virus.
0: L.A. County health officials say 20 percent of all positive COVID-19 tests in June
4: were among vaccinated residents. One of the reasons why, you know, weeks ago we were recommending people keep their face coverings on is the Delta variant is a game changer.
0: That's Barbara Ferrer, director of L.A. County's Public Health Department. She said there are still very important reasons to get vaccinated. Very few of them ended up hospitalized and even smaller numbers ended up passing away. Ferrer said the June 15th reopening and rolling back of COVID restrictions may have something to do with the spread among vaccinated people. Case rates are shooting up in wealthy areas of the county, including Beverly Hills and West Hollywood. Health officials reported more than 2,700 new cases on Thursday, with people under 50 years old making up the vast majority of the new cases. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles.
3: Out of work Californians who've been waiting weeks and in some cases months for their unemployment benefits will finally be paid, some as soon as today. The shift comes after lengthy negotiations between the state's Employment Development Department, or EDD, and the Center for Workers' Rights, That's an advocacy group based in Sacramento. The California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin has been covering unemployment issues since early in the pandemic. She joins me now to talk about this important new change. Hi Mary Franklin good morning lily can you explain this change in basic terms to us
5: yeah lily so this change affects people who edd has already deemed eligible for benefits and who have already received at least a week's worth of unemployment benefits in the past up until now even if edd had already deemed you eligible for benefits if some sort of question came up for edd on your claim for example everyone who's on unemployment is very familiar with this certification form that they have to fill out every two weeks to stay eligible for benefits. Well, if you made some sort of mistake on that form that flagged your claim for EDD, EDD would stop paying you benefits. And what's happening now is EDD is giving itself a two-week deadline to investigate whatever question they have about your eligibility. And then after that, they're going to start issuing what they call conditional payments. So people won't have to wait while EDD is investigating their claim to get the support that they need.
3: So they're giving themselves this two-week deadline to sort things out, whereas before, that process could go on and on for weeks or months. What kind of pressure convinced EDD to make this change?
5: Well, EDD has gotten a lot of pressure from lawmakers and the state auditor and all sorts of officials throughout the pandemic. But for this particular change, it really was a culmination of lengthy negotiations with the advocacy group, the Center for Workers' Rights out of Sacramento. A legal complaint was filed, which culminated in an agreement from EDD to make this pivot. And there
3: are a whole lot of people who are going to be affected by this change. You spoke with one of them yesterday. Tell us about him.
5: I spoke with Abdul Adam, he lives in Hayward. He was a bus driver before he got laid off last March. He's been living with his children who have been helping to support him while he's been looking for work. And his claim got snagged this past March when it came up for its one year renewal mark.
4: I call every day. At like one time I called by accident as an employer and they answer and I said, can you transfer me? They said, no. So I call every day, say it's it, but I never get anything.
5: And when I asked Abdul what he would do with his benefits once he finally got them, he just said, pay down his bills.
3: Wow. Well, what you've learned in your reporting is remarkable that more than 100,000 people, at least, who weren't getting benefits now will. That's huge. But this could have other ripple effects as well.
5: That's right. Because if EDD can decongest one part of its system, that helps the flow of lots of other processes. It's like an ecosystem. And, you know, the person who helped me understand the interconnectedness really sharply was Daniela Urban. She's the executive director of that Center for Workers' Rights, that advocacy group behind this change. About a month or so ago, Daniela and I were talking about the hopeless place that people are in when their claims get flagged by EDD because it is so hard to get through. And she said something to me then that now feels really prescient. If they were able to simply pay benefits while they investigate whatever issue it was,
2: then the number of calls each week to EDD would drastically reduce because people would be getting payments in the meantime. I wouldn't be so concerned about putting food in their mouth that they feel like they need to call EDD every hour to try to get it remedied.
5: And Lily, you know, the EDD call center data for the week of July 10 through July 17 shows around 250,000 calls answered by staff out of more than 3 million calls entering the call center. So there's a hope that this pivot will help to ease that incredible load for both EDD staff and for people who are carrying the burden of not getting their benefits.
3: All right. Well, Mary Franklin Harvin, thank you for this reporting. We really appreciate
0: it. Thank you, Lily. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of The California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world.
1: I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California.
3: The opening ceremonies of the Olympics in Japan are underway this morning. At this year's Games, a handful of sports are making their debut. Among them are two that have a special place in the hearts of many Californians, skateboarding and surfing. The California Report's Keith Mizuguchi spoke with Salema Masakela, a longtime action sports commentator and host.
1: Surfing and skateboarding have a long history in California. Could you take us through a little bit of that history, some of the people that you know, helped innovate the sport from the state and why it's such an important part kind of of the culture and fabric of the state. Obviously, surfing is is such a huge part of Southern California, like aspirational culture. You don't have to even be from here to think like, if I go to California, I want to take a surf lesson. That's what everyone wants to do. How communities are shaped and driven are based around this activity in the ocean. Like, you know, how good you are as a surfer in Southern California dictates the way, you know, people treat you on land. You know, here where I live in Venice Beach, skateboarding was born of surfing, you know, with, with Dogtown and really taking surf culture and inventing something new uh, with skateboarding. And then the way that popped up regionally in what was going on in San Diego with, with Tony Hawk and, you know, Steve Caballero and, and the Bones Brigade, et cetera. And the way that skateboarding has continued to evolve to not just be coastal but really representative of urban areas as well like the accessibility of of skateboarding all you need is the wood and the the trucks and four wheels and you can go skateboarding anywhere do you think there are a lot of misconceptions about the sports That, you know, they're only these kids wearing baggy shorts or, you know, baggy jeans. And, uh, you know, so many of the kids are, you know, just these white kids that are trying to do something other than play baseball and football. It's really a diverse group of athletes that are participating in sports, right? Yeah. I mean, skateboarding, especially when you talk about diversity and inclusion, skateboarding has always been the first in line. And again, that lack of barrier to entry of where you live making the huge difference and you could be a hip hop kid and you could be a punk rock kid, you could be an emo kid, whatever. But like, do you know how to fall and get back up or what do you do differently when you're negotiating that curb that I can learn from you? Even though we're doing this as individuals, we're sort of all responsible for moving the thing forward and picking up the, the little signatures from each other to help evolve and grow the thing. And that's one of the things that's so beautiful about the camaraderie of skateboarding in that it can pass through, you know, whatever your economic status is concerned or race or even gender are so much far less of a factor. I think surfing has been far slower to to adapt and become inclusive. We see the conversation strengthening now uh, in these last couple of years. But of course, the barriers to entry in surfing has always been about where you live. And you go back to Southern California and the history of redlining and why most, you know, neighborhoods and communities that are coastal are mostly white. And you're able to see why black and brown folks um, were slow to be able to, to gain participation, but we're seeing the landscape start to expand. And it's, it's exciting to see.
3: That was Salema Masakela, a longtime action sports commentator and host who will be commentating on surfing during the Tokyo Olympics. Now to a Californian participating in this year's Olympics, Sagan Madalena. She's with the US Olympic shooting team. Madalena grew up in Groveland, not too far from Yosemite National Park. So Sagan, when did you first get into shooting?
2: I got into shooting around 2009 through 4H and also my grandpa taught me about gun safety and handling firearms, but mostly through the 4-H program where I grew up, Groveland, California, and the Jamestown Lobe Gun Club.
3: You did end up having quite a bit of success in college. Uh, did you ever imagine you would make it to the pinnacle of your sport?
2: I did. Not to sound like <laughs> um, <laughs> full of it, but... You got to see it yes, to believe always, it, right? <laughs> yes. I've always had that drive to, no matter what, keep going. To me, actually, the pinnacle of the sport is still I still haven't touched it yet. It is um, to be the one of the best shooters in the world. This only gives me the opportunity to compete with the best Mm. um, going to the Olympics.
3: Ah, That's interesting to hear you say that because to someone like me just being at the Olympics, (laughs) that's the pinnacle. But yeah, I hear what you're saying completely. And Sajun, you did try to qualify for the 2016 Olympics, but you missed out. And this last year has been super challenging for everyone. But what has the pandemic meant for you when it comes to training and practicing as you get ready for these games? Was it disappointing to have the games canceled last summer?
2: Well, I think it was a blessing in disguise. At least it was for me because I wasn't at my peak at that point. I have been with the um, Army Marksmanship Unit, so I'm a rather new soldier, two years. But if I subtract a year and if trials were a year before, I was still rusty and getting my muscle memory back down from after basic training. So I wasn't quite prepared then versus now I, I've had a chance to really ingrain my training back into um, my subconscious. And I was more prepared this year than I was last.
3: That was Sagan Maddalena of the U.S. Olympic shooting team. And that is the California Report for this Friday, July 23rd. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin, Danny Bringer, and Jim Bennett, with assistance from Seal Muller. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our director of news is Vinnie Tong. Our executive editor is Ethan tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend.
5: Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. Paint Care, now with 800 drop-off sites in California, where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org and Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits, stanfordhealthcare.org slash care.
0: Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now you can get the Bay Curious ebook for one ninety nine. That's right, a dollar and ninety nine cents. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading.